Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today is going to be a very interesting episode. I am I have invited Dr. Nancy Olivieri. She's a pediatric hematologist from Canada to talk about her story. She is a whistleblower. She uh, is going to describe her story in an upcoming book in the next year or so. But Nancy is a pediatric hematologist. She's a researcher. She was working on a drug. It's an iron chelator. So it's usually used. What that means, it is used for patients who have iron overload. So if patients have a lot of iron, there are drugs that you could use to get rid of the iron because too much iron in the body could lead to a lot of problems. Again, I don't want to be too technical here, but uh, you know, there's a disease that happens in children called thalassemia. And this disease, the thalassemia, leads to uh, patients or children needing blood transfusions. So when they need the blood transfusions, they end up accumulating a lot of iron in the body. And the more iron there is in the body, problems could occur in the heart, in the liver, in the pancreas, and so forth. And eventually, patients could die from the iron overload or from the disease or whatever it is. So iron chelation therapy is the ability to take iron out of the body. Is something that is rather important, especially in patients who require a lot of blood transfusion. In fact, we do that in hematology in some of the diseases where patients receive a lot of blood transfusions. So Nancy was working on one of these drugs, uh, investigational therapies that is an iron chelator. And you will hear the story where she discovered some adverse events and she was trying to report these adverse events, change the informed consent, but her institution did not cooperate. And the pharmaceutical company that was helping with that particular drug did not appreciate the fact that she she wanted to report on the adverse event. So I'm telling you, it's a crazy story. It's a roller coaster. But then Nancy goes into many of these legal battles and and she ends up being in court in Europe, in court in the US, and I don't know, just a crazy thing. So I really asked Dr. Nancy Olivieri to come on Healthcare Unfiltered because I wanted to share her story with you and with the public, but also what are the lessons that we can learn from this? I mean, what are the lessons that we can learn in situations like that? When you find something you would like to discuss or report on because it does affect patient care, but the tide is against you and you're unable to do that. That's the story of today's podcast, Healthcare Unfiltered, with Dr. Nancy Olivieri. Please subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review, refer a friend or a colleague to the show. I appreciate your support, and without further ado, Dr. Nancy Olivieri on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, it's really a pleasure to host Dr. Nancy Olivieri on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, Nancy and I Uh, have met several months ago as part of a collaborative research work that we do together with the University of South Carolina. And I was just completely fascinated by some background story that Nancy was involved in, uh, where there's really, uh, I'm not going to give you, you know, I'm not going to spoil the plot for you, but you're going to hear a story that is rather fascinating. I would say it's 
on the intersection of uh, pharmaceutical greed and academic lack of integrity, whatever we're going to call it. Nancy will tell us. Dr. Olivieri, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule. And I know you're doing this after your second shot of the Pfizer vaccine, where we <laughs> have to postpone our taping because you got ill yesterday. God, yeah, I didn't have a good reaction, but I had more of a reaction than I thought. But Chatty, I'm really pleased to be here. I'm really grateful. I'm excited to talk to you on this wonderful podcast. Thanks for asking me. So you're feeling better. I want to make sure whatever you I say. I feel great. Yeah, I feel great, everybody. So, I feel great. So just a little bit before we start about your story and what you went through over the past several decades, a little bit about you and, and, and who you are and uh, where you worked and are you currently working? Just tell us a little bit about you. Sure, sure, sure. So I am, I'm Canadian. I graduated from McMaster University Medical School, 78, great class. I went on to training in internal medicine and hematology. And I, <clears throat> uh, in 1986, I came back from uh, Boston to take up a position as the director of the thalassemia and later the sickle cell disease programs at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, where I worked <clears throat> for the next 25 years until, as we'll hear, I left SickKids. And I'm currently at the University Health Network, which is the adult hospital right across the street from SickKids, still at the University of Toronto, professor of medicine, pediatrics, and public health sciences there. And I'm still working in Sri Lanka. I formed a charity called Hemoglobal, which works with thalassemia in Sri Lanka and Calcutta, India. And I don't do a whole lot of clinical work locally in Toronto any longer. Okay, so you do, you divide your work between, you do more research and administration and some of the clinical work is more global work outside that's of the- That's right, that's right, that's right. So Nancy, I wanna go down memory lane with you into something happened in the 80s where you were 80s or 90s or somewhere back there when you were doing clinical trial and something happened. Take listeners through how did this all start? Because okay, I want to take okay. the story gradually. Okay, so it was a different time in clinical trials. And what I read in the BMJ was a, an article about an orally active iron chelator. Because thalassemia patients get transfused every month and they accumulate tissue iron and they need to take something, a drug called a chelator to remove iron. <clears throat> okay, so I call up the people in England and they're not interested in collaborating. So I go to the University of Toronto and I ask my colleague in chemistry if he can make this orally active drug. And he says, it's simple enough. You could make it in your bathtub. He makes it for me free and he encapsulates it for me. And we get permission from Health Canada and what's called then the Medical Research Council of Canada, which was public funding like the NIH, to do a trial in thalassemia patients and compare it to the standard therapy. Now, the standard therapy was needles infused 12 hours a night. So everybody was seeking an orally active drug. So the trials went on and they went on for about four years. And then the first publication was in the New England Journal in 1995 and it was favorable. We were terribly excited. My colleague, Gary Brittenham, then at Case Western, now at Columbia, and I did these trials in parallel. And he was, um, you know, the person who looked at the, all the iron levels and measured them. And then about a year and a half later, right about the so, time so, that- So just the 1995 paper was the, the, the culmination of your own work of the drug that you manufactured. That's right, it was. And it was all publicly funded. And then about a about a, six months before that, uh, a drug company headed by a, a, a CEO named Barry Sherman 
had wanted to get in and we needed, we applied for more funding and the, uh, the medical research council said, you need a pharmaceutical partner. That was when it was starting to happen that we needed to have commercial support. And this gentleman, Barry Sherman agreed to partly fund the trials. He still was supplementing public funds. And then about eight months after that, I said to Gary and Gary agreed with me that we were looking at some last uh, inadequate eff effectiveness and some toxicity of the drug. And <clears throat> we told the research ethics board at the hospital for sick children that we were finding this. And they said, well, you have to revise the consent forms and you have to tell the patients, which we said, great. So we made up the consent forms on the May 21st, 1996. I sent those and I sent them to the CEO in question as well, Barry Sherman, the head of this drug company who was partly funding the trial. And on May 24th, 1996, I got a letter and a voicemail saying, if you tell patients, parents, regulatory agencies or the scientific community about your concerns, you will be served with all legal remedies. What were your concerns though? And where did the concerns, okay, so we were, we were actually, the concerns come from? Well, our concerns came from the fact that everything in thalassemia is measured. The, the life-limiting complication is iron overload. So if liver iron start exceeding seven and particularly 15 milligrams per gram dry weight of tissue, then you end up getting cardiac disease, glucose intolerance, and premature death. And these were not levels that anybody had made up. These had been defined years and years before. They were not controversial levels. So I take a look and I say to Gary, but look, X, patient X has gone from X to 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The next patient had done the same. The next patient. So we were saying, well, this doesn't look like it's working anymore. It had worked at the beginning and we published the paper and everything had gone down significantly. But now it seemed that those levels were either rising or not being maintained at the level we needed them at. So we tell the, the research ethics board, I must say its first chair was, was exemplary in his conduct. He said, you don't have any choice. Just give me those forms. I need the revised consent forms. And we gave them to him. And then three days later, all this happened. Now, the first person I called, well, not the first, but probably the second, I think the first person I called was Gary, but the second person I called was the Dean of Medicine. And the Dean of Medicine at the University of Toronto said, well, they can stop the studies. What's the problem? I said, well, there's the problem because first of all, they have publicly funded these trials. Secondly, we've got to, you know, we've got to disseminate these concerns and they're saying we can't. And if we do, we're going to be served with a lawsuit. And there followed kind of a, well. So, 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 so you wanted to modify the consent form. Exactly. Alert. That's the key, Chatty. Right. Everybody says, oh, you wanted to stop the trial? I said, I'm not the people who stopped the trial. In the same letter, the guy says we're stopping the trials. We didn't want to stop the trials because not everybody was not benefiting from this drug. There were people, about a third of them, who looked like they were doing well. So we had all kinds of, it seems ridiculous now, but all these hypotheses that we presented to the drug company in which we proceeded to propose to explore whether it was compliance, whether it was vitamin C levels. These are all things that might be relevant in the response to a chelator. And we had all these fairly scientifically based ideas to do this. And they said, we're stopping the trials. And we are, by the way, telling you, if you say anything, that'll be the, and so we, we didn't so, have anybody. So, so you, you went to, you wanted to modify the consent. You went to the research ethics committee. You went to the Dean and you said, I want to modify the consent. And then how did the, did, did the pharma company learn that you were trying to modify the consent? I sent them the consents. 
I sent them. I said, I'm oh. sending these guys the consents. These are the consents. They're going out this week to all the other patients. And it explains what we found and explains why we want to continue. And please, you know, because we were really proceeding in a in an effort to be transparent and open. I don't know why we thought we could be, but anyway, we did. And that's he when sent they you, said, he sent you like a threatening letter. Oh, it was, it was, it was, unfortunately, it was voicemailed and tape recorded. Uh, because if it hadn't been tape recorded, and I don't want to fast forward, there were lots of subsequent denials on the basis of the CEO who said he hadn't said that. But fortunately, when you got the tape, you mm -hmm. got the tape. Anyway, yeah, it said that. So I sought help through the academic institutions. But the little twist in the story was, and I'm going to be careful how I say this, I'm going to say it just the way Arthur Schaefer said it in a very long, probably the longest journal of medical ethics article that's ever been written. He said, some were led to speculate that the academic institution's unwillingness to support academic freedom and patient protection were not unconnected to the university's expectation of money from the same pharma CEO. And at the time that this all happened, the very month that this was happening, the University of Toronto was expecting a donation that was larger than any donation it had ever, ever received from the pharma CEO in question. So they were not exactly greeting my and Gary's concerns with open arms. They were like, what the hell? And sorry, I don't know if I can say hell on this. Yeah, no, it's and, healthcare um, unfiltered. You can first, <laughs> you can say whatever you want. Okay. <laughs> Drop F-bombs, whatever you want. Anyway, I think Arthur's paragraph is perfect. Some were led to speculate that this was not unconnected. So we kind of didn't know this at the beginning. We, we, we actually, believe it or not, thought we'd take it to the dean and he'd say, that's outrageous. There is no pharmacy you know, that can permit you not to tell the patients what, what you need to tell them and to publish. And that was the first two years of it, back and forth, trying to say that it was a scientific controversy. And the reason they said it was a scientific controversy, and this is where it kind of gets confusing, is there was a pharmacologist named Gideon Corrin who was involved in the trials at the beginning. The reason I bring him up is he kind of comes into the thing a little later when John Le Carre read about this story, and he might have just passed it by except for this twist. John, who, John, who is John Le Carre? Well, John Le Carre is a, is a thriller writer, and he wrote a book called The Constant Gardener, loosely based, fictionally, on this story. And the reason he, one of the reasons that John Le Carre um, wrote this story was because of the twists and turns in the academic community that happened, which we don't need to get into now. The real meat of the whole thing is that but if you do want to pick up The Constant Gardener, it's a good synthesis. It's probably the only, it is the only book John Le Carre ever wrote on the pharmaceutical industry and its machinations. So we go on and we prepare abstracts to present at ASH, to prepare at, at the Kalisanemia Foundation meetings that outline what, what these. Year, what year are what year now are Now we're up to about 1997. Uh -huh. uh, we get threats every time. The threats continue. If you appear at this meeting, you will be served with all legal remedies. So eventually, uh, well, not so eventually, pretty immediately, I got protection from something called this Canadian Medical Protective Association, who decided that they would defend our right to disseminate the information in a scientific journal. So in 1998, fast forwarding a little, I got um, our second paper outlined the problems with Deferi Brown again in the New England Journal. Um, and that's really when, believe it or not, our problems 
escalated. And that's when the university um, did not fire me, but the other academic institution, the hospital kept dismissing me. There's a lot of backstory here. What's the, what, what's the drug again? Say the drug again. It's, the drug is deferiprone. It's an orally active iron chelator that binds iron and promotes its excretion in patients who are iron loaded. So and in 1998, so, you published another paper after the 1995 where you described right. the concerns that you had. The problems, right. And then after the publication of that paper, one of the institutions fired you? Uh, no, um, repeatedly, I was dismissed from my position as the head of the hemoglobinopathy program. Coming from um, one of these uh, internal investigations appointed by the Hospital for Sick Children called the NAMARC Report, which was headed by three ethicists or scientists, NAMARC, Bartha Knoppers, and Fred Lowy. And they took several hundred pages to record that if anyone was at fault, it was me because I hadn't done X or Y. And you'd have to read the NAMARC report to figure it out because it's, it's been discredited. But as a result of the NAMARC report, I was referred to the College of Physicians and Surgeons, the Canadian licensing body, in an effort to remove my license. Now, that was a hairy time because, of course, I didn't really want to lose my medical license. But fortunately, after a year and a half, the, C the, Canadian, the College for Physicians and Surgeons said, are you kidding me? Like... <laughs> There's nothing this person did wrong. There's everything she did what, what right. What was the basis like? Why did they want to remove your license? What was the, I can't read the entire report, but what was like- I know, it's very, well, but the basis the, of this was, they claimed that I had known about the toxicity, which of course they denied existed. It's kind of like that Croucho Marx thing where he says the food here is so terrible in such small portions. I always say that because they said, <laughs> there's no toxicity at all. And by the way, you didn't tell the patients on time. I'm like, well, first of all, you said there was no toxicity. And secondly, I did tell the patients, but you guys said you wouldn't help me with the lawsuit. So yes, there was anyway. The point was, is this was the accusation. But of course you can't read the report, but the CPSO took a year and a half to say, what are you smoking? There's no problem here. She did everything right that was commendable. And about that time, also co-released was a 500 report called the Oliveri Report by the Canadian Association of University Teachers, which outlined everything that had happened between 1995 and 2001. It was released in the fall of 2001. And it was proof that you need a, an association of university teachers. I, I should be paying the University Teachers Association for the rest of my life because of that, because it was headed by three unpaid academics who worked for two years with all the documents and found what the NAMARC report had tried to cover up. So in the fall of 2001, I got those two acquittals, if you will, Chatty. I got an acquittal from the college which said nothing she did was wrong and we're not taking away her license. So that's sorry about that. And I got this um, big report, but then the problem is, is that just around that time, I got a brown paper envelope handed to me in Australia and it you showed that- Australia, what, for vacation or something? No, no, I was talking at some at some conference and I'm grateful I was too, because I, the guy ran off, it was a guy, and uh, in it was the application to the European regulator for deferiprone by the CEO. And oh. in that, the CEO alleged that I had 
committed so many protocol violations that nothing I could say about these trials could be believed. So when that happens, I think everybody here would be afraid that you would be labeled, as my lawyer once said, a science of almost breathtaking incompetence is what the company accused me of. So I, I sued the European regulator and said, you can't rely on these data because they were my data and they, I know what the data showed. So I issued, it was Oliveri versus the commission and the EMEA. And uh, we went to court early in 2000 or 2001. And the Danish judge heard us and said, um, I know this is getting a little complicated. So pull me back if I'm going down a rabbit hole. But he said, I'd like to see all the protocol violations that Dr. Oliveri allegedly committed. <laughs> and the other side said, well, no, we can't show them to you. And he said, I'm the judge and I get to see what everything is. So send it to me. And on my birthday in 2000, I remember because it arrived on my birthday, he sent me this and said, what the hell? And then I had to commission somebody whose name you might know, but a lot of drug relators would know him named Graham Dukes, who did a seven month audit of my trial and found that there were very few protocol violations, none in the primary endpoint and two delayed serum ferritin concentrations. And he said, these, this trial was conducted robustly and there are no basis to this. So then the EMEA had a problem because they were relying on what they understood was an unreliable investigator and they had believed the company CEO. However, now it was all turned on its head. They licensed the drug as a last so resort. Before, before we do the licensing, before we get to the verdict, sure. you after you published your stuff and you got all of these issues, this thing was not being... Uh, filed for approval in the U.S. was still the CEO. No, no, we're still a long way from there. Yeah, but that's the story. The we're still in the EU trying to file for approval for the EU. And somebody like a good Samaritan handed you an envelope yep. and told you this is what they're trying to do. Yep. And then when you say you sued them, Nancy, and, you know, I mean, this is, are you paying out of your pocket <laughs> money for these lawyers? These lawyers are- Oh my God, I must've spent 5 million. I don't know how I did. I had a friend who said, did something similar at Health Canada. And she said, they don't know how I'm surviving. And then she paused and said, I don't know how I'm surviving. Well, I didn't have anything at that time, right? I didn't have, uh, like, I didn't even have a, I had a tiny house. I didn't have a family. I didn't have a kid. I didn't have any real responsibilities. And my, my lawyers were patient in taking the money month by month. They were unbelievable. I know people have had bad experience with lawyers and people glibly say, oh, lawyers make things worse. But my lawyers always made things better. My European lawyers, my labor lawyers in Canada. But you paid I, out of pocket. The bottom yeah, line is you yeah. paid out of pocket for these lawyers. Yeah. Um, and you felt strongly that you're going to, I mean, frankly, a lot of people may not be able to afford. I know. I know. I know. I know. The lawyers I mean, who are listening to this podcast, your lawyers make a lot of money. I'm just, you know, because I have a lot of lawyers that listen to my podcast and I want to make sure they know that they make a lot of money. So, so, so <laughs> then uh, a Danish judge was are uh, basically supervising the case. He took the first hearing in Luxembourg in 2001, I think. Oh. And he said, I'd like to know just how incompetent this scientist is. If you're claiming her data are wrong, then I need to know how wrong. And um, of course, because he was the judge, he got the pleadings and every detail of that. And I can still remember, Chatty, it was 3,160, the 60 kills me, protocol violations. And so that's when we went to Graham, Professor Graham Dukes, who was both a lawyer, a doctor, and a former member of the CMP, as the European regulator. Yeah. And he took an audit and he said, 
nonsense. There's nothing wrong with these trials. These trials are conducted. So then um, the EMEA, the European regulator, went ahead and licensed it, all but for second line therapy. They were also they were also very, very far into this. They hadn't expected, this was the first, and I believe the last time anybody as a citizen challenged the FDA because it was a little bit different in those oh, days, wait, right? FDA or EMA? I'm confused. I thought it was still- The EMEA. The EMEA is the- You said, uh, is, you said FDA. The, it's essentially the European FDA, the regulator, right? Yeah. So that was the first time, I believe the last time anybody had done that because the reason they can't do it now, as you well know, and I well know, is a lot of these trials are more opaque now because they're run by pharma. My trial had started, I could tell you the birth date of every one of my patients. And I could tell you exactly what their ferritin was on a certain day and what the liver iron had had. No one could tell me anything about the, those data that I didn't know. So that's rare now because you're handling multi-center trials and pharma's kind of running the stuff. And Graham Dukes told me stuff that would just curl your hair about it. But the point is, is that I don't think people would do it now because they wouldn't have the knowledge to say, wait a minute, that's not what my data show. That's not what my data show. So anyway, then the, then the trial took five years and we were in Luxembourg again. Five in years. Yeah, 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 five years. It, it went on and on. And in December, 2003, well, from the first filing, and we got a notice that said it's thrown out on standing. We were heard in early 2003 and I remember a very famous in the trial, or not in the trial, but in the hearing, a tribunal, three judges, not the Danish judge this time, Spanish judge, a Swedish judge, and I forget who else, said, um, what's happening with the FDA? And I said, uh, the FDA is still looking for animal studies in this drug. And then there was this awkward pause in the Luxembourg court. And he said, you're asking for licensing of this drug in Europe, all the Americans are looking at studies in rats. And I remember my lawyer turning around and saying, I think this is going well. Anyway, it was going well. And then in December, 2003, we got a notice saying it's dismissed on standing. Now standing for the lawyers are gonna understand this listening to your podcast, but for the others, standing is um, requirement to have legal uh, recourse to actually bring it. So if I see you run over by a car, I can't bring a lawsuit on your behalf because I feel that you're a doctor and I'm a doctor and I'm offended by the fact that you were run down. I have to have some legal uh, recourse to do that. So they said, well, you're not a European and you're not a patient with thalassemia, so you have no standing. So it took five years not to consider the merits of this case. So a lot of the time when this story is told and retold, they say, yeah, but the European court didn't find anything. And I have to say, the decision was on standing, not on merits. And it had it been on merits, they would have looked at it. And I believe found that that was not what the data showed. But that said, um, that would brings us up to about 2003. So it, got, it got approved in Europe though. It is approved as a last resort. It's a, well, yeah, yes. It got approved in, in 01, between 01 and 05? Uh, it got approved finally, I think, in 01. In 01. Yeah. And then, you know, it was, so, you, you know, you basically couldn't stop the approval. No, I couldn't. I couldn't stop it. And that reminds me of my FDA experience. But I don't have to go on to that right away, but it kind of does tie in. And about 10 years later, the same CEO makes the plea to the FDA that I'm an incompetent scientist and should. So what, happened time, between, what happened though between 01 and 011? Because well, I, um, um, I'm not allowed to say, but there was a lot of defamation and libel going on. 
And um, I had to fight on several fronts. And I um, <clears throat> settled with the university and hospital. And so um, you and university got into a lawsuit about uh, this. Well, well, we whatever kinda, you can share. I know you can share. Yeah, we kind of got into several lawsuits and most of them, although not all, were settled between 2000 and 2010. There were two outstanding lawsuits in 2012 and 2014 that were settled. And the 14 one was with the CEO who had, well, he had kind of libeled me on 60 minutes. So I, I sued him for libel. And that took... So for those who are listening who have no idea what libel is, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about uh, a statement about someone who brings them into ill repute or shame that is false. The defense to me saying something about you is that I could say, well, it's true. That would not prevent you from suing me, but it would be the ultimate defense. Truth is a defense to libel. If you say someone is crazy or, or, or unhinged, or um, destructive, you have to be able to prove it in court if they sue you for that statement. I guess it's slander if they say it and right. libel if they write it. But anyway, on 60 Minutes, it was quite an uh, accusation to an astonished Leslie Stahl. And, I, and the reason I bring all this up is it because it kind of entered into the lawsuits of the next decade as well, because the libel lawsuit that I issued against the CEO who met a violent and mysterious death three years ago. God, this story just doesn't end. Um, but before he died, we um, the settlement for the libel had occurred, but it had taken 15 years from the original, um, from the original uh, 60 Minutes episode. I know I'm probably confusing your reader, mm -hmm. your listeners, aren't I? Well, I'm trying just to look at the time frame because I, so I think I'm trying to I want to make sure I I'm trying to have a chronological order of sequence of events. We got to the Europe and it got approved in Europe despite the lawsuit, and the lawsuit was dismissed based on you know not based on merits based on that's outcome. right based on standing. It's but, a very important uh, distinction. Right. After that, though, you were you had some lawsuits between you and the institutions. To the extent you can share, I'm confused. What were the merits of the lawsuits with the institutions and the universities that you were working at? Well, the main, the primary lawsuit were the slap lawsuits issued by the uh, CEO of the pharma company. The, there really were no, after the college referral failed, on the basis, after the academic institutions referred me to the college and that failed, there were just a series of attempts to reconcile with myself and my four colleagues, all of whom were quite distinguished people. And they deserve to be brought into the story because in most whistleblower stories, the people are often alone or they have one friend or, but extraordinarily in my case, and there was actually a Journal of Medical Ethics article written by Francoise Bayless about this, and it was called The Oliveri Debacle, Where Were the Heroes of Bioethics? And what it outlines is that I had four friends at SickKids, no more than four, but four, who kind of ruined their lives, Chatty, for 20 years for me. And we would have meetings, we would have conferences, we would go to the university, we would go to the hospital, we would go to the dean, we would go to the provost together, separately, two of us, eight of us, four of us. And they led, and it was very difficult, therefore, for the university to just shove off and try to dismiss me because they had to dismiss five of us. 
it's really important to understand that if, if, if you ever hear this story and somebody is struggling, that even an email or, a, you know, I'll come with a meeting, I'll come to a meeting with you if you need my help, is, may change the course of the person's struggle. Anyway, it wasn't really so much lawsuits between 2000 and 2010, Chatty. It was more that we were demanding settlements on what had happened to my colleagues. Some of them had become quite ill during this time, trying to struggle with me. I wasn't ill myself, but they had been, they, one of them had become ill. And the issue really was the lawsuits contained in one thing I can't talk about, which was kind of a major explosion in the middle of 2005 <clears throat> that involved the university about which I can't speak right now. And then of course, the ongoing onslaughts from the pharma CEO who put, you know, slap lawsuits there. These are lawsuits against public policy and they, 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 are, they are aimed at shutting you up. And um, a lot of this has been made public and those lawsuits proceeded to be settled. And one of the problems with the, 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 the libel lawsuit is that we obtained a settlement, but then the CEO refused to agree to the terms of the settlement. So we had to go to the court of appeal, which is the second court. I mean, most of the, the decade between 2000 and 2010, I spent in discovery and court and with lawyers. I should have paid rent to there. But anyway, they um, that kind of settled at the end of 2014. Okay. But in the meantime- And when you refer to the CEO, you're looking at the CEO of the company. Yeah, the CEO of the company. So that settled in 2014. Late 2014. And then at that time, were the FDA submissions were ongoing for- Okay, so the FDA, <clears throat> I get a call from the FDA in 2009 saying they're coming for an inspection. And I say, I am so happy I could die. And the guy says, you're happy about an FDA inspection? I said, oh my God, this is going to be the best week of my life. So what happens is, the FDA was similarly told by the CEO that I was a scientist of breathtaking incompetence, but instead of believing the CEO as Europe had, the FDA said, no, I don't think so. We're gonna come up for an inspection. And you know how rare these inspections are. They're even rarer for sites in Canada for trials that have been stopped 13 years before. But I had preserved everything. I had never taken off my desk any of the CRFs. They were stacked in behind my desk in the perfect order on the day, May 24th, 1996, that the trials had been abruptly terminated by the CEO. So the FDA comes up and I am just so thrilled. I can't believe it's the best week of my life. And she goes through what she's been given and she realizes that what she's been given, this is all on the public record because public citizen, Sid Wolf and Michael Karomi wrote a long letter about this. So I'm not seeing anything out of turn. She realized that what were in my CRFs differed substantially from what the FDA had received. So she looks at them and says, well, Chatty, he had a liver iron of 15. I said, no, liver iron of four. And then here's, her, here's his last CRF, see? She says, mm-hmm. She went through that and it took a, took a week. And two months later, the advisory committee on this drug was shut down abruptly. And I visited this, the FDA and explained what had happened. And they were pretty much ticked off, they weren't happy about this because she had probably told them, listen, this woman is anything but crazy and all the data are still there. My father saved everything, that's why I save everything. So it was never, it was just as if the trial had stopped the day before. And so then 
And the trial um, was stopped because the FDA mandated the stoppage of the trial? No, no, no. The trial had been stopped 13 years before. The CEO had said, I'm stopping the trial. Remember that? Right, but to apply And then for, to I'd apply saved everything. That. And right. then when he applied 13 years later for That's FDA true. approval, the FDA says, well, what's so, happening? So he, he applied 13 years later based on, 13 the old, years later. based on the old data. There was no That's new right. trial. Okay. That's right. That's right. I mean, that's right. And so he said, but you need to ignore it because she committed 3,160 protocol violations. And so the FDA, again, didn't really believe this, I don't think. It's hard to believe anybody is that bad, a scientist. So they come up and they inspect the trials and they find that not to be supported. And they also find the level of concern that I'd expressed and some evidence for why and some of the liver irons were in the CRFs. And so she was able to observe what I had been struggling to tell them and Europe. And um, so she goes back to the FDA and the FDA shuts down the advisory committee. Got it. And, um, and then everybody's really mad, especially at me, but then the FDA issues a letter that says, well, look, there are no data. So we would like you to conduct another trial. I mean, given that <laughs> the right. first one, including that I had a randomized trial going on as well, that was also shut down including the fact that these two trials were shut down, we don't have any data any longer. So how about we look at a, at least one randomized control trial of this drug's effectiveness? And he said, no, let's go with a composite of 12 or 16 trials looking at serum ferritin, which as you know, is a surrogate marker. It brings up the whole approval of the Alzheimer's drug this week on surrogate markers. And the FDA- so you wanted to do like a meta-analysis or like- he didn't do a meta-analysis. He included several studies, mainly industry-funded studies, that had looked at something called the serum ferritin, not a liver iron. Liver iron is the quantitative assessment of body iron burden. The serum ferritin is a surrogate marker of body iron burden. And it's a little bit too complicated to explain, but it was, they basically, they, they said, let's put it all together. Now, I want to tell you before you start scratching your head that um, uh, one of the people who published an article on this called How Low Can You Go?, asked Richard Pasdor of the FDA, has any drug ever been uh, licensed on such low quality data? And he replied, no, I hope this doesn't establish a precedent. So there you go. <laughs> so I'm just quoting people now because that, those are in the public domain. So, so then so, I- so, so I was gonna say now, the FDA shut the advisory panel- For two years. For two years. So we're now like what, 014, 015? No, 2012. We're 2012. And then what happened? Did they reopen it back? What happened after 12? Yeah, they, they approved the drug as last resort. The Cochrane calls based it last. On based on what? Based on the surrogate marker 16 trial thing. I mean, you and I have seen the Alzheimer approval this week, so we shouldn't be drinking on, on, in response to this, but now I feel like a drink. Um, yeah, so on the surrogate marker and... Um, and the FDA said there's no evidence of clinical effect from this drug. Now, if you tell a layperson this, they say, oh, this person must be delusional because the FDA would never ever license something on the basis of no clinical effect. And I'm sorry to say that that is exactly what even the product monograph says. So, um, I mean, you know, when people say things to me like the FDA is going to prove it, mind you, I used to say this stuff too. My students say this all the time. Well, the FDA will prove it. And I say, don't make me kill you. Of course, that's not going to happen because now I know that the FDA approval, you know, may mean something in some cases, but in some cases it doesn't. So this is what happened. 
Um, I'm not using the term last resort lightly. It's what the Cochrane in 2013 reported with respect to deferiprone, a last resort therapy. And they said, we see no reason to change direction in therapy based on this. So they were quite clear. So that's in 2013, it's approved uh, as a last resort for patients with thalassemia major uh, that are requiring transfusions, obviously. That's uh, right. 2013 and beyond, what, what happened after that? And, well, and, and, and the institution participation in all of this has been the same? Like, you know, they're just no issue. Well, by this time, Chadi, you know, the university has kind of exited the scene and it's sort of operating on its own, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're at the FDA. They're not happy. The, unlike me, they're not happy. The FDA came up to inspect, but I am thrilled beyond belief. It really was a game changer. And well, Sid Wolf and Michael Karomi from Public Citizen write a big letter to Wolcock, the FDA commissioner saying, you cannot license this drug. And they hold a press conference saying, you cannot license this drug. Naturally, the FDA licenses it. Now we're up to 2013, the Cochrane writes report. And in 2014, we're still in court, but we finally reach mandatory mediation with the drug company CEO and we settle. That's all I can say, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then, um, what happens is that I, I get told by a lot of patients, I'm still in contact with my patients because I kind of grew up with them because in 1982, when you were probably not even born, I went to SickKids as a heme fellow and I met all these people who were expecting to die at 18 and 20, but because iron chelation therapy had been introduced by David Nathan in Boston four years before and they had gone down to get this, they're still alive today, most of them. So we can thank him for that. But the point, I guess, is that I knew these patients. I'd known them for 40 years. So they start telling me, but they told me I have to go on to fairy prone. I said, what the hell do you mean you have to go on to fairy prone? Aren't you on X? And in the middle of this chatty, Novartis licenses a drug called X-Jade, which is also an orally active chelator. And it is non-inferior to Desferol, ruled non-inferior. And I've used it quite a bit in Sri Lanka and I'm making no plug for it. But I, you know, it's a reasonably... Um, it's, it's an adequate and effective drug. And so that was what I was expecting my patients to go on in the middle of the 2000s. And yet in the university, uh, in the hospital where I am, they were being placed on, this is around 2010, a lot of deferiprone. So they said, what the hell is going on? Well, why? And it turns out that it hadn't been licensed yet in Canada. And one of the physicians at the University Health Network undertook to switch several patients, 71, which is about half the locally transfused group, from standard treatment with two iron chelators to deferiprone. And I published a paper, I brought this to the attention of the University Health Network about a thousand times between 2010 and 2019. And finally, 2019, after I'd worked on the data for five years, I published a paper in PLOS that showed what had happened during the exposure of this drug to the patients for whom I had consent to do this uh, look back study. And it was quite a serious series of complications um, in which patients had developed new diabetes. Diabetes is a complication of, of, of uncontrolled iron, um, had developed serious liver inflammation or, or dysfunction. And um, then, we told the UHN, so that was published in, in the local paper called A Frightening Scandal, because it wasn't clear that these patients had even undergone this evaluation in the context of a clinical trial. Don't forget, 
during the time I was doing this, or maybe I didn't tell you this, it was not a licensed drug in Canada. So what was happening at the University Health Network was an unlicensed drug was being administered to half the locally transfused patients. And my colleague, Brenda Galley and I kept asking, well, why, how could this happen? Where's the clinical trial reports? Where's the consent forms? And we got nowhere. So finally we published this paper and it, it kind of made a bit of a, a alarm system go off. And since that time, uh, there was a so-called internal review that said there was no problem that 71 patients had been given unlicensed therapy, but it was all okay. And as soon as the six years were up, the drug was licensed at Health Canada. Yeah. So when was it approved in Health Canada? 2015. About what is that? That's about 20 years after this, after the whole story that I've told you in a very confusing way possibly started. So, so we're still in the middle of this, Chatty. We're still Arthur Schiffer's second. Like six years since it was approved. What's going on now? Uh, well, what's going on now is we're trying to figure out why these people were given a non-approved drug under the circumstances in which we can't find any informed consent forms. We've gone to the research ethics board about of several times and we keep getting stonewalled. We're stonewalled at every turn. And about March of 2020, just as COVID broke, 88 scientists, ethicists, researchers sent a letter to UHN saying Dr. Oliveri should be able to tell the patients what happened in this case and what about informed consent and why they were switched to unlicensed therapy. And we support this transparency very greatly. And we never got a letter in response to that. So we set up a website called inthepatientsinterest.org um, that sort of it's mainly the letters that I've written to the University Health Network over the past two years saying, how could you give an unlicensed drug to people if you didn't have informed consent or a clinical trial? And so this is kind of a scandal upon a scandal. And people say, didn't this happen like 20 years ago? I said, well, no, not exactly. It's sort of a new scandal. And since that time, so we've been to the European court, they've taken me to the college, that failed. We've been to the FDA, the FDA acted very diligently at one point and then not so diligently at the end. And, um, you know, it just everything has right. kind of snowballed. And it's kind of just the whole failure of accountability in this case. So I want, there, there's a lot that we covered in terms of what we are talking about. I, I hope listeners were able to, they probably need to have like a pen and paper to write the sequence. I'm sure they're confused. Yeah. Uh, uh, I would be. But, but you know, what I want to do in the last 10 minutes, uh, Nancy, is to kind of just try to really pick your brains into what you've learned over these past 30 years. You've been dealing with this yeah. for almost 30 years. You know, you've dealt with pharma, you've dealt with the CEO, you've dealt with your own academic institutions, you've dealt with the FDA, you've dealt with the European Regulatory Authority, You've dealt with the court system in the US, you've dealt with the court system in Europe. So you, it's fair to say that you have dealt with so many aspects of the legal system, the academic system, and the pharmaceutical industry. So at least in my simple brain, I'm trying to decipher all of this complicated story into few lessons learned into what's your observations. I guess I let's talk about how, in your experience, in dealing with the academic community, I want to start with, university, deans, chairs, whatever you dealt with 
over the past 25 years throughout your experience, what are the lessons learned from that particular aspect? And then I want to move to a different, then I want to move to pharma. But tell me about your observations, lessons learned from what you've learned from, from dealing with the academic community. Well, Chadi, I, um, I'll start with my colleagues. Again, I just want to give them a shout out because most people are silent. They don't even look at you. Your whole Christmas card list changes and you don't, they're not interested in you and they, and they try to sideline. And if they don't want to attack you directly, they just move away. So I must say that I found extraordinary in the actions of four people. I would say more like 10 people because there was one ethicist. In, in, so if I learned that there were people who, no matter how unattractive it seems to support you, will listen to the story somewhat reluctantly at the beginning and then say, what the hell? Okay, I'll be involved. And I don't know how to piece the commonality of those people together. In fact, it's one of the only questions I find terribly interesting, the one you've asked, which is, I used to say, what's common about these people? And a lot of people say, oh, Nancy, why is this interesting? I say, well, because this is the heart of it, really. Who helps people when they're down and right? Not down and wrong, down and right, and maybe down and wrong too. But so the upper echelons of the university, I use that term loosely, the people who have achieved positions of power and privilege, almost universally, I say almost, because I'm gonna say that I had high, um, highly respected colleagues in both Oxford and Harvard who helped me um, in an astonishing way. And it kind, of, it kind of put a spoke in the University of Toronto's wheels because these people were like, no, we don't think she's crazy. No, we know she talks too fast, but we think she's completely right. We 100% agree with her. These were prominent hematologists who spoke up. So, and there were people including in the law faculty, who were, were absolutely critical in reversing some of the ways we thought we were going down. So there are odd people in the university, high, high hierarchy, but in general, most of those people have ascended by being yes men and yes women, and they won't ever go against the university's hierarchy. So you need to re rely on, on good people, and it's hard if you're in a state of confusion and fear to figure out who's good and who's bad. I was probably the luckiest whistleblower on earth. I had these people and at several junctures, they were completely critical to any success we had. So I think in general, you, the second thing I want to just add quickly is that I had the faculty associations of both Toronto and the, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, and they were headed by two extraordinary people at the time, Bill Graham and Jim Turk, respectively, and they were just fearless. I kept waiting for them to bail, and I'd say, okay, well, we're going to so, run so, but, but you've had some of the colleagues that supported you and worked with you, but others who turned away, who did not. Oh, many more you. turned away. I'm, I want to know about leaders. I want to talk leadership. I want to talk chairs, deans. Okay, uh, couldn't, come up with about... one. couldn't come up with one. I could come up with I could come up with people outside the university like David Nason, who was head of the Dana Farber, and David Weatherall, who was head of the Weatherall Institute in Oxford. Those people were tireless, and, but local, not a person, not one person. How about uh, in dealing with the FDA and in dealing with the regulatory authorities in Europe? How would you describe your experience? Any lessons learned there? I would say that. Um, no, I would say that I saw quite quickly 
I saw the inspector who came and did my trial recognize the truth of what I was saying. And I grew confident in that. But then after that, there was the process of let's just get this through. You know, the FDA is paid 75% by pharma and um, that it's, it's quite complicit in many decisions with pharma. I didn't see any leaders in the FDA taking on anyone. It's who are the leaders who have protested the FDA? Sid Wolf, Michael Karomi of uh, a public citizen. They were the ones who said, what the hell is going on here? You can't license this drug. Of course they did that unsuccessfully. So I wouldn't have identified any uh, great shiny example of integrity in either the European or the FT or the American regulator, certainly not in the Canadian regulator as either. How has been your experience with the legal system, whether it's the legal system in the US or the legal system in the EU? Well, you know, I had extraordinary lawyers, extraordinary. I had an extraordinary libel lawyer, an extraordinary labor lawyer for 12 years. She was my labor lawyer. I mean, I do think a lot of people say that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, Winston Churchill said about democracy, it's terrible to go to lawyers, except there's no other alternative. And sometimes you just have to go to court. And that- If you can afford it. Yes, this is the problem. And, you know, we had, we made joint contributions and we had people helping us. And my dad helped, well, he was still alive, but he wasn't wealthy either. And, you know, there was, yes, you're right, it's terrible. And a lot of these lawyers did it on the cheap or on delay. And I'd say that my, it's ridiculous, but my experience with lawyers was almost completely positive. That's good, because that's good. Hey, to all the lawyers listening, you're doing yeah. good job. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I had faith in them. I had faith that it was returned, I think. So let's, let's try to ask about your experience on your reflections in dealing with the pharmaceutical industry, although this is like an N of one with one company, but how, how did the past three decades, um, what lessons learned are there? Well, I think it's a pretty sad state now, as you know very well. Um, it's kind of like it's gone with the wind when we used to do our own trials and Gary and I would think up a protocol and say, that's a stupid part. You take that out or I'll take that out. That doesn't happen anymore. And what I think the public should know is that pharma manages, there's all kinds of wonderful books written about how, how ghost managed um, clinical trials are and what they really mean, which is exactly what pharma wants them to mean. So we only know about drugs, what pharma wants us to know. And I don't, I have a number of reasons of ways that can, we could get around that, but they're complicated and, and cumbersome. And obviously my experience with pharma has not been a good one. Um, but I think anybody who doesn't go along has a reasonably rocky experience with pharma. And, um, you know, if you don't like being told what to do or told what the data is going to show, you're probably in for a rough ride. You might want to look at another career than a clinical investigator. So Nancy, what's next for you? This is, by the way, it's just a fascinating story. I think it's complicated. I think it's I a crazy story, but uh, what's next for you? Well, I, um, I, I want to get back to Sri Lanka and Kolkata because, you know, thalassemia is very, very under-resourced there. You would not believe how under-resourced it is. I mean, very few people are actually even transfused and chelators are free, but their reach is the tenders aren't. So, I mean, those are the happy times we had for 26 years. We've been working in Sri Lanka and just talking to the people there yesterday and working on papers. That's, that's where I really want to be. 
uh, are you writing your experience as a book or, or something? Yes, you know, I just did. Someone, I want to someone, show. someone wrote a book about it and you were not happy with that. Well, I, I didn't. I, I, um, I was unhappy to the point of libel, um, Chatty. But I am writing a book. I finished my master's in fine arts and creative nonfiction at King's College Dalhousie. Thank you to my professors and colleagues this spring. And I'm about halfway, I'm going to say three quarters to make my mentor feel better, half three quarters of the way through the book, which kind of is a tell all. And he keeps saying, we're getting a libel lawyer to look at this, aren't we? And I keep saying, yeah, don't worry, don't worry. But we'll, we'll have, have to. The publisher and everything, right? Yes, I do. When should we expect that coming out? Oh, God. I, I joke. It's in my, it's 85th draft, probably next year. Next year. Well, I expect a signed copy. <laughs> You'll get a free signed copy, Chatty. Well, um, Nancy, I think, you know, really, you know, witnessing what you've done, you, you, you stood up for principle, the way I would describe this, right? I mean, Thanks, you stood up for principle, you stood up for the children who were on clinical trials. This is, was your really true north, and this is what you were trying to accomplish. Unfortunately, sometimes the system does not right. always honor this, and you, you got... Uh, into this whole convoluted uh, uh, convoluted thing. But I, I would have expected, I must admit, I would have expected that your own academic institution that you worked at to be a little bit more understanding to what you were going through. Listening to you, I wasn't really impressed by the way they handled things, I admit. It's a problem. It's a problem and it's an ongoing problem. Not just my institution, but certainly mine. Yeah, it's a problem. I, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about rogue institutions, Chatty, but I don't know one example. There's the example of David Kern at Brown, Betty Dong at UCSF, Ignacia Capella. There's just on and on these examples go. And I don't know of one institution that ever said, hang on, pharma, hang on, biotech. We're taking our researchers' view on this and we're going to push back. I've never heard of one. It's economics. Mm -hmm. It's economics. Well, Dr. Nancy Olivieri, uh, uh, an absolutely dynamic whistleblower with uh, patients' interests uh, as hard. Appreciate you coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Oh, I appreciate it so much, Chatty. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. It's a, it's a crazy story. It's a fast-paced story. It's a little bit confusing with the timeline and everything we just talked about. But hopefully uh, you can, by the way, find a lot of the story online as well as on YouTube to hear some of Nancy, Nancy's interviews. Uh, and I look forward really to her book coming up uh, uh, next year. I appreciate your support. Let me know how we're doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also send me an email at uh, chadinabhan00 at outlook.com or you can visit my website, chadinabhan.com and let me know how I'm doing. I appreciate all the support. You can please subscribe to the show, rate the show, write a brief review to the show and refer a friend or a colleague to the show. It's, it's really uh, important that we expand and we figure out how we can improve on the show as much as possible. And um, um, uh, I appreciate again the support. Um, look, before I let you go, I would like to leave you with um, uh, a quote. Um, I, I've said that um, 
I've said that before, but I do think it's really uh, important. Um, it's one of those uh, quotes that might actually fit for uh, today's podcast. And it is stated by um, Winston Churchill. You have enemies, good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. Until next time, take care.